people. Uh, welcome to drboystv.com, the home for intelligent black people. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. And, and I'm going to tell you what, uh, you all know the importance of us uh, recognizing our heroes and choosing our heroes and, uh, and, and uh, also developing the people in our community that we know have made the contribution to us directly. And uh, the man that we are speaking with today is, is one of my heroes, uh, Professor James Small. Uh, Professor Small is, uh, is an expert on pretty much all things related to our people. Uh, he, he's, he's very, very bright and intelligent, has a lot of wisdom and a lot of things he'd like to share today. And, uh, and as I welcome everybody in, I'd also like to welcome my brother. How are you doing today, Professor Small? I'm well, sir. I'm honored to be on your show. You're, you're the hero. You know, you're, you're a legend. No, you are. When you say Boyce Watkins, everybody go like, really? You know? And the young, people, <laughs> the young people love you. And that's good. That means they're hearing you. You know, that means you're teaching well and they can hear you. You know, thank you. And thank you. I'm honored. You know? I, I'm honored and flattered by that. And, uh, and you know, and I, I'll tell you, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I know I everything that anybody does, you know, we all need blueprints and templates, you know, mm -hmm. to live by. And and I can tell you that um, I know in my personal journey, it, I would look at some of the black men that I saw maybe growing up or black men I saw on TV or black men I met in academia or black men I met in corporate America. And I saw a lot of duds, <laughs> you know, I saw a lot of, a lot of no goes, no fly zones. Like, okay, but okay, this guy over here, okay. He's, he's, he's locked up, you know, and he's, he's high all the time. I don't want to be like him. Okay. This guy's mm. cooning out. He's out here, you know, uh, kissing a white man's feet. I don't want to be like him. You know, this guy over here, you know, he, he don't even know who the hell he is. You know, he, so, so, so what happens is um, eventually you, you find, uh, uh, those um that that gold in the in the in the mountain so to speak the gold in the middle of the dirt or the, or the the diamonds in the middle of the coal and uh and so that would i would say people like yourself or dr claude anderson and uh a few others you know kenny gamble and others where i say mm -hmm. okay this is it these are these are men that have um uh gone out and and and, and really gotten things done and and really stood firm really knew who they were and uh and you're in that category and so so i would say um uh, first off, let me just start from the beginning, uh, for, especially for those of you who don't know uh, a lot about Professor Small's work. Some of you do, I can tell. Tell us about, you know, just where you came from, how you came up. I, I'd love to just start there, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's that's a good place. Um, lately, I've been talking. I'm from South Carolina. I'm a Gullah Geechee culture person. Um, grandma was a group woman. Grandpa was a preacher. Great uncle was one of the founders for Drew Ali of the Maury Science Temple. So I come out of that tradition. Papa was the head of the Prince Hall Masonic Lodge there in our village. And I met Malcolm X at 16 years old because I wanted to. I saw him on television. My mom and dad had moved to New York. And I saw this mighty man. So I called my mother, said, I want to come to New York in the summer and meet this man. So she came home and she and my brother, we drove back to New York and I got to meet Malcolm X for all of 15 minutes of his life. Right? The most extraordinary spirit in the world. And he talked to me, to, to, to me, the little country boy from South Carolina, from the little Acadia plantation in the woods, that was God. And I was amazed. I don't know whether I even said a word other than I want to join you and I was going to leave school. and. The, what he said to me stuck all of my life. He says, son, you go back home to school. He said, it is education, education. That's gonna be the, 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 the most important thing in freeing our people. Mm. That was the impetus for me going to college, you know, going, wanna go to school, wanna learn, wanna teach all of my children to college, all of them except two are teachers. The other two are administrators and, and in the finance and stuff. So because Malcolm X set that off in my brain. And while I was away in the military, I served in the U.S. Navy. I joined the Navy in high school as a reservist. He was assassinated. And my brother was a part of the organization. So when I got home, I joined the organization. And within two months, I was Sister Ella's personal bodyguard. Within six months, I had been elected as the imam over the Muslim Mosque, Inc. 
and I served as a imam for 11 years. Most people don't know what happened to my mosque. I was went to Mecca twice, you know, in those days. And I realized culturally that was not ours. So I shut it down and got more involved, you know, in the more <clears throat> what people call radical element. I don't even like that word. But working with the Sikor family and the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, working with Snape, with Rap Brown, with Stokely, um, and then working with Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Dr. John Henry Clark, you know, Dr. Ben, Dr. Hilliard, Dr. Carruthers, Dr. Karanga, and others, and trying to build the cultural and the historical movement. Well, after I got involved in education, but this has been my whole life. I, I got involved in my first picketing, uh, the Strand Theater in South Carolina, and and then the um, the what's the call the counter, the lunch counter there, the same company. Um, uh, when I was 14 years old, I'm 14. I'm 76 now. I don't think I've missed a day at work really. Um, this has mm. been life. This is life has been about resistance rebellion for the betterment of our people um, to try to make sure we can provide food, clothing, and shelter for ourselves, trying to teach us how to get hold of economic politics and culture where we live. That's how Malcolm defined black nationalism. People got it wrong. When he said by any means necessary, he didn't say by one means necessary. He said any means necessary. And mm -hmm. economic was one of the primary means he was talking about. You know, somebody yeah. asked him, Minister Malcolm, um, what do you mean by black nationalism? He says you got to control the economic politics and culture where you live. Step one. And you can't do that if you don't get control of land, labor, and resources. Step two. And you can't even go there unless you're inspired and understand the need for you to provide food, clothing, shelter, safety, security for yourself and your family. And that the bond with others to do the same thing in the communities you live in. Mm. So that's been kind of my space. You know, I've, I've had a few businesses in my life. I taught at City University in the Black Studies Department for 18 years. Um, I was an administrator in City University also for 16 of those 18 years. Um, me and my comrades own a hotel complex in Ghana. We actually, to buy that complex, we raised a million dollars among ourselves, Brother Boyce, because no banks would give us any money. And we did that in a year and a half. So we wow. can do that when we want to do that, right? And we bought this hotel complex. The COVID has us down and closed now. So we're trying to rally and move ideas and finances to get back on, on our feet again. But we still have a staff there that's taking care. Matter of fact, I got to send salary tomorrow. So, you know, you got to handle that wow. business. Um, and we have we also started a credit union in Ghana, um, the African American community that lives in what is called the Central Region, you know. And we've been working those two projects there. Um, and over the years, I've helped to start a credit union here in New York. Of course, we lost that because we got beat back. We didn't understand the rules of finances back in those days. Um, and I've always been a believer in using whatever tools you have. So I helped establish two political, um, um, what do you call it? Um, political, political clubs in New York. Okay. And one of our clubs got so strong, we merged with Charlie Rangel Club for a 50-50 operative on it. But you do, wow. you got to do all of it. You got to vote. You got to become the city council. You got to become the policeman. You got to become the fireman in your community. You got to become the sanitation people in your community, if you indeed to call it your community. You can't sit back and complain that other ethnic groups are smart enough to use this political structure to run your community. But when they run it against you, you complain. No, take over the running of your community. That means get, mm. get voter education as well as voter registration and use that tool. It's nothing but a tool. I even advocate that brothers join the military. I don't know how you feel about that. But my no. thing is, if you have no other pathway, use the pathways that are available. You join the military, you come home, you're at the head of the line for the police department in your neighborhood, you're at the head of the line for the post office, you're the head of the line for other civil service jobs, you're going to get money to pay your college education, and you can get money to build yourself a home. Other ethnic groups are using that very well for themselves, and they're getting a step ahead of us by using it. 
And we, our fathers used it. I used it. My dad used it. He bought our home with the, with the VA money that he got. My brothers used it. And we all remained active in the black community and in the black movement. Going in the military, we were in black organizations in the military. Heck, I was jacked up by CID when I was 18 years old because we found the black brotherhood. And back then, you know, we had hair, right? And so we wanted to grow afros. And they said we couldn't grow afros in the military. So we showed them that a black man with an afro hair was shorter than a white man with, a, with a, an official haircut. And oh. so we had some young white men support us. And we, went, we were in the courtroom with, with young measuring our hair. They still <laughs> find $50 a payday because we wouldn't get a haircut. Wow. So that's that what... was resistance, you know. Um, wow. I was in the military and I refused to go to Vietnam. I was a Vietnam resistor along with others who said we may be in the military, but we're not fighting an unjust war. And I got court-martialed for that. Hmm. I did too, but most of us won because they never declared war in Vietnam. People don't know that. That was not a declared war. Hmm. Well, you know, my father, um, my father, who is now uh, 70 years old, um, he was in the Vietnam War, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, my Uncle Jerry, who uh, just died last week, actually, at the age of 72, uh, Mm -hmm. he was also a veteran. And uh, I saw the effects you know uh that that war had on black men um yeah. you know not you know i mean just all the way across the board and uh mm-hmm. and i i remember my father telling me about uh coming back from vietnam with a heroin addiction mm-hmm. and um and it i remember was I, it was deliberately done really okay was, yeah the, the the very country you were fighting for were providing you the drugs to go jeopardize your life every day hmm. Then spraying defoliant like Agent Orange on you while you were in the bush. I had two of my family members come up and die from cancer from Agent Orange because mm. they got sprayed by their own people with, with a chemical that they never told the soldiers what that chemical was and denied mm. it for decades before, you know, they admitted that it was the Agent Orange that was causing the cancer in so many of the veterans. So. But you've got to stand up and fight. That's why, you know, some of us, we, we formed the brother. I don't know what the word meant. We call it the split brotherhood. But it was a brotherhood, right? And we stood together. And a lot of things I can't talk about here, you know, um, mm. through those years. Well, well, you know, um, since we're talking about Agent Orange, and I I, I, I Google stuff on the fly because I, I'm, I've always been real curious about Vietnam. I watched... Um, I watched an 11 hour documentary about the Vietnam War because I saw how much of an impact it had on my family and the impact it had on the community. Um, and I wanted to understand it. You know, what's the origin? So I, I I mean, it went all the way back to before Ho Chi Minh and why Vietnam was under occupation for a long time. And and uh, and and, uh, and I just thought about it extensively. And and uh, and it, it was really a, a very fascinating kind of thing in the sense if, for a lot of reasons, but and I won't do a complete brain dump because I, I want I want to hear I want us to hear what you have to say. What I have to say is not important, but um, but I, I learned a lot about. It reminded me of just all the different reasons that we have to be skeptical of what the government tells us to do. It doesn't mean that we that they're always lying, but right. you fast forward 30, 40 years later, and you get into the pandemic, and that's a whole other set of conversations that occurred during that time. And people are looking at black folks like, well, well, why don't you trust us? Why should we? Why, why should we? You know, and, and people who don't know that history, you know, who were who are stepping up saying, no, just trust the government. You should trust the government. It's like, how, how stupid do you think I need to be? I mean, I'm not saying I'm not willing to hear all evidence and all information, but mm-hmm. I need to understand what you're about to do. What is it that you're putting in my body? Why are you doing it? Um, I need to be the final arbiter of that, as opposed to me simply saying, oh, I can trust you. I'm going to go let you drop me in the bush in a country I ain't never been to and spray some some strange chemical over me and have me killing strangers for a reason I don't understand. I think black folks have to be critical thinkers in this regard. Absolutely. Can you kind of speak to that, The you know, in terms of the necessity oh, of critical thinking? Because I'm closer to that than most people would understand. I grew up on a plantation owned by the Vanderbilt in South Carolina. Wow. A real functional plantation. Right? 
My family was the family that took care of them in the big house. We were the bodyguards, the butler. I've, I've been the butler, you know, and, and mama and them been the maids, you know, and the cooks. And my brothers were bodyguards. My uncles were bodyguards. And one of my brothers, he's an ancestor now, but he used to sail with Mr. Vanderbilt on the yacht. And they used to sail off of Vietnam a lot. This is while the French was still under the French occupation and the transition was coming because of Algeria forcing the French to pull their troops out of Southeast Asia. And what they were doing was mapping the location of the oil fields. Vietnam was partially about oil off the coast, right? So America, instead of helping France hold on to her colony of 400 years, when France had to move its troops to fight in Algeria against Ahmed Benbella in the Algerian Revolution, America took advantage and seized Vietnam for itself. That's why the Charles de Gaulle, de Gaulle didn't speak to America for decades, right? But here's the thing that really will kill you. What was the biggest commodity in Vietnam? Rice. Everybody in the world eats rice. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry. We took that industry from her and we poisoned the land so they couldn't grow rice. And then the wow. Sacramento, the Sacramento Valley became the biggest rice producer in the world, not Southeast Asia. And we missed it. Billions wow. and billions and billions of agro conglomerate dollars. Wow. So it was all about the money, basically. And I think that's a great segue into uh, the discussion. And by the way, everybody, if you just came in, I'm talking with Professor James Small. And, and if you have not noticed uh, the, the depth of wisdom this man has, um, I hope that you will show that respect. And also, uh, don't forget, we're trying to build intelligent black media. So if you could, please take one second. Uh, give me a yes in the chat if you can do this, if you can confirm that you'll do this for me. Uh, share this video. Please share. You know, you, everybody's got social media. Everybody's got Facebook, Instagram, all that. Share this video. Our people need knowledge. Our people need leadership. This is, this is in, in my view, I'm, I'm telling you all, this is a person that uh, should be amongst our leadership and everybody needs to know about what this brother's saying. So please give me a yes that you're going to share this video. Uh, also hit the thumbs up button, subscribe, notification bell, all that good stuff. We have to be very intentional about our behavior as, as a people. So, so Professor Small, let me ask you this. Um, so as we're going into the, um, the One Africa Unity and Power uh, Conference in Detroit this weekend, and I'm going to give everybody the link if you all want to join either virtually or in person. It's in Detroit. It's going to be very big. Uh, you, you, you pretty much, and it's funny, you and I start, <clears throat> we start talking about your history, and then we start talking about Vietnam. And, uh, and I didn't plan on talking about Vietnam today. It just I, I feel like God just tells us which direction to go. But it, we end it right back up in, in the world of economics. You know, we right. We all. It seems like everything, uh, a, a big percentage of the conversations we have about our struggles of people, always ends up back in the land of economics, economic That's intelligence. Yeah. Foundation. So, so tell me um, about that in terms of uh, like what's going to happen with the uh, the One Africa uh, conference in Detroit. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us about that and Hoppy the film, and because uh, you were in the film, I was in the film as well, but. But you you were far better than me. You, you, you're a much better looking man than I am. Uh, tell me about how that all ties into our core mission as a people to really control the, uh, you mentioned the economics and politics and the culture in our community. Right. Well, let me say one thing first to preface that, to let our people know we're doing much better than most people care to, to appreciate that we're doing as a people economically. But we're a big people. And we've got to do better. Last year, we spent 1.6 trillion, some people say. That's a lot of money. But we didn't aggregate it, as Dr. Claude Anderson said. So it flipped over in our community one, two times at best in some parts of the community. And then it went to fuel other people's wealth, not our wealth. And so we have to figure out, how are we going to get control of this? And so I go back to my teacher, Malcolm X that you must control the economics, the politics, and the culture where you live, that you must be in command of land, labor, and resources in the community where you live. Then the fundamental question is, since we have that kind of wealth to spend, how do we do this? How do we take control of economic politics, culture where we live? 
Now, the title of my speech on Saturday evening at 5 p.m., so y'all need to tune in because I'm going to drop some science up there. It's called Rebirthing African Consciousness. Rebirthing African Consciousness. But I'm not talking about religious spookism because I'm not into spookism. I'm saying consciousness is living in your reality moment. Being conscious of the situation and the circumstances and the moment that you are living and then get involved in that moment consciously. And the moment we are living in Mm. demands that we take control of providing food, clothing, shelter, safety, and security for ourselves and our families and our friends and our relatives, selves and families. And then we come back to economic learning how to use the wealth in your environment, learning how to to find the wealth in your environment, getting in charge of your politics, which is the management instrument for the wealth in your environment, and developing your culture, which gives you the ethical, moral tools to guide the political course that is managing your wealth. And so that comes down Mm. to not making it too esoteric, what we're saying, poverty is what's killing people, not gun violence. You know, they have to talk about gun violence, gun, but guns don't pull no trigger. I've owned guns all my life. I never saw one of them pull itself as a trigger. Only the mind can pull that trigger. The mind pulls that trigger. And if you have a bunch of impoverished, broken, shattered, damaged people, hurting, full of hate and anger, they will pull a trigger and not care where the bullet hits. So how do we change that dynamic? The majority of us are working class people and middle class people in the black environment in America. But that small segment that is broken and impoverished and stumped down can kill any one of us, no matter how much wealth and, and wisdom and knowledge we have. You raise your beautiful little daughter, and she go, and some little bubba from the hood get her, and it's a wrap. And you can cry all you want. But if you didn't help to change that hood that she's going to walk through, or that young man of yours is going to walk through, then you are living in the hood even when you're in the suburb. Mm. Mm. We have to help change the poverty dynamics in the black communities of America if we're going to change the violence and the assault dynamics in the black community of America. And you know, um, must, oh, yeah. go on, please. I'm sorry. I, well, no, I just, no I, I, to your, to your point, to learn, and this is where we come back to you. We need to learn how to gain and manage wealth. Hmm. Well, you know what? Um, and to your point, that what you just said about changing the poverty dynamic and the culture in, in the community. Um, mm-hmm. I remember one time I picked up my daughter and she was, uh, she was crying. And I said, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? And she said that her best friend baby used to babysit this uh, three-year-old uh, boy. And uh, she said, uh, he's dead. And I said, well, how did he die? She said, well, he got shot in the head. And I said, how did he get shot in the head? And she said that what happened was the boy's mother got into an argument with a 19-year-old who lived next door, uh, who, you know, one of these wannabe thugs, you know, whatever, think he's tough, think he's a gangster, all this other nonsense. And he got upset, so he went home and he got a gun and just shot up the front of the house. And uh, and he didn't know that there were seven kids inside the house that were playing at the time. And the three-year-old ends up getting shot in the head. His, his brain was bleeding for three days and swelled, and he eventually died. And I remember that when I heard that story, I cried too. And I didn't just cry for the three-year-old who got killed. I cried for the baby who shot him. You know, because in my mind, if he's 19... You know, it wasn't that long ago that he was also, you know, a preschool, you know, and, and and as a little baby, he wasn't, you know, as a five-year-old, he wasn't thinking about trying to kill nobody. He wasn't trying to be no thug. He wasn't trying to go murder people. Something happened, right? Something, happened. Something happened along the way that that manufactured this thug that killed this three-year-old, but that, that turned him into whatever he became, that, that monster he was that day. And, and, and I thought about that and I really tried to trace that, you know, five years old, six years old, seven years old, what has, what occurs in the life of that child. And, and my belief is that he, you know, every time he reached out for somebody to give him love, they gave him hate when he needed somebody to lift him up. 
they 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 crushed his soul. You know, when he needed somebody to stand with him, he they he was abandoned. And so he gets turned into this monster in the community, and the monster was created by us. We allowed that monster to uh become what he became. You know, yeah. now he's in prison for the next 80 years or something like that. So so ultimately <clears throat> my argument is that, that whether you choose to do something or not do something, there will be an effect. When it you choose not yeah, when you choose not to act in the life of a child, there's gonna be a consequence. Absolutely. And so we come back to this thing we call poverty, which isn't just physical. And you just touch on the most important part of it, the psychological poverty, the cultural poverty, the 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 love denial poverty. Imagine people in our school system all these years. We fought. I'm one of the founders of the second black studies department in this country, right? second or third, San Francisco State, San Jose, and then City College in New York um, back in the 60s. And we had black studies in almost every school system in the country, and they wiped it out in a 20-year period. Now they're arguing about something called critical race theory. I don't even understand what they did. But what it is, is it's people saying, we're not going to teach the truth, even though your tax money pay us. We're not going to teach your children how to feel they're worthy, how to feel that they are capable, how to feel whole, how not to feel marginalized. You see, how do we teach you telling me you're not going to teach my babies. I was for about seven years president of different PTAs because I had to be up in them schools with my babies, okay? I, I would ever teach anybody I've ever had. My children do the same thing today. They think our family crazy, but it's our job to save those babies. And if I save mine, I save the others if I change that environment that they're in, you see? Because this is really about teaching human beings to be human beings. Mm. And we've got someone that runs the system that says, I'm going to extract a few of mine and allow them to function as human beings, but I'm going to create an environment that's going to fracture and break the consciousness of everybody else Mm. so that I can rule over them. Mm. I can have power. And then Mm. I'm going to put together a system when they wake up and try to resist, I will incarcerate them and have laws that say they are non-functional in society now, that they've got a label of a felony on them. They can't get a job. They can't go into public housing. They can't get certain loans to go to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'm going to create an environment where I will import people. And no disrespect to nobody, but I know what's up. So don't play with me. Where I will import people, finance them to control the retail infrastructure in the community that that black population lives in. And many times they'll look just like us. And what are we supposed to do? And so it comes back down to this concept of consciousness, being aware of the moment that you're living in, understanding what that moment demands of you in order for you to create change economically, politically, and culturally that will change the social ecology and let you rewrite the social contract with the rest of the world. Wow. Well, um, everybody who's listening, I'm speaking with Professor James Small. And uh, Professor James Small is um, iconically brilliant and uh, somebody that I think everybody should pay attention to. And I'm going to actually give you all information on where you can follow Professor Small. And uh, also, more importantly, this weekend, uh, the One Africa Unity and Power uh, conference or power and unity conference, excuse me, is happening this weekend. It's going to be in Detroit, but you can join virtually. And uh, what I did was I put a link to uh, to the events page on voicewalkins.com. If you go to my website, you can uh, click on the link and you can get a physical ticket if you'd like to be there in Detroit, which I highly suggest because it's going to be amazing. I wish I could be there. I'm actually going to try to fly in on Sunday and join the last part of the conference. My wife is speaking there as well. Uh, and then also, if you want to join virtually, there is a virtual pass. And so I hope everybody will take a look. Uh, we need to learn who we are, and these are the individuals that can teach us that. 
Uh, Dr. Melinda Karanga will be there as well. Uh, Professor uh, Leonard Jeffries will be there. Uh, Dr. Ken Harris, uh, Shahrazad Ali, Riza Islam, Kaba Kabane. Excuse me, did I say that correct? I want to make sure I say it right. Yeah. I don't want. Yeah. I don't want to mispronounce. Uh, yeah, and so many other great people. So just take a look at the page, everybody, because this is really good. It's going to be in Detroit live uh, this weekend. And uh, also you can join virtually. Just go to boyswalkins.com. The link's there. So, Professor Spar, let me show you something, man. I, I found this uh, picture. I told you I'm, I'm a Googler. I just I think Google just has the secrets to everything if you look in the right places. And, and well, I was I'm looking. A, I'm a Googler. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You gotta. <laughs> it sounds almost a little weird, right, when I say it like that. But uh, uh, but check this out. So when you were talking about our 1.6 trillion that Black people spend every year, and they call it spending power, but I don't think there's any power in spending. It's it should be investing no. power. Somebody drew this cartoon, and I I don't know whose cartoon it is. Uh, it looks like it says Cutting Edge uh, Cartoons on Facebook. Uh, so everybody should go follow them. And it's a great cartoon, and it has uh. You know, Black America's trillion dollars in consumer buying power—that's the big fat pig—and then he's mm -hmm. got a bunch of nipples on the pig. Uh, the mm -hmm. media is eating off, is, is eating off one nipple. You got corporate America eating off another one. Uh, um, Asian businesses and all these other people coming in your community, controlling your hair salons mm -hmm. and everything—they're eating off of it. Mm -hmm. The other one, what the hair care industry, uh, bank, mm -hmm. Hollywood, and then he's got black businesses over here. And black businesses are actually related to the same color as the, the black pig. And the black mm -hmm. businesses are sitting over here and they, they can't even get access to a nipple. So the black businesses are starving and everybody else is eating good off the pig. I, I think that's a pretty good way to describe. Oh, way like yeah, I love it. What do you think? I'm going to duplicate this. You need to send, <laughs> send you my email. You need to send this to me. Because I'm going to be because this describes it completely. You know, I, there's a movie out called The Godfather of Harlem, right? So I'm the primary consultant on that movement. Now, we, we haven't been pushed for any of the awards. And I said, because we killed too many white people, right? <laughs> that's by the way, that's one of my favorite shows, by the way. I'm, please, so, there's always an argument when we saying the theme of this thing is when the Harlem underground meets the civil rights movement. So that's where Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell comes in. But the critical center core is Mr. Bumpy Johnson declaring the black community should belong to black people. And that, is, and that theme is resented in the Hollywood world. You mm. hear the rumbling, but it's been so powerful they couldn't push us off. And if we will start shooting the third year on the 11th of June, and it's going to be more dynamic than the two years before. But the idea is that can we use media to instruct, inform, and suggest behavior? Because that's what media does, you know? And then show models of possibilities, you know? And so, oh, you always on it, huh? Boris is, is a heck of a brother. You see this oh, brother I, right I, here? I, I love it. This brother has, Tell me about it. he has a refugee camp in South Sudan. He has a refugee camp in Uganda. He has a refugee camp for our people in Colombia. And then he has in the school system in LA, a leadership program in two schools for black youth. And most people mm -hmm. don't know that he does that work. That's why I bonded with him. And I learned, oh, what this brother's really doing? That he's really a black man? That he's really taking his wealth and sharing it to try and uplift that other part of his community around the world? Extraordinary brother, besides being a heck of an actor and a good friend. Just an extraordinary, extraordinary man. But the idea is that media is one of the most powerful tools. And I'm sure we must have invented it. And they may have taken it, but looking at the trend of history, much of the tools of media technologically was invented by black men and women, and is still going on today. We need to learn how to use it even better than we are doing now, because culture is the primary education system of a people. What we do in the school, that's a part of the education system of a people. But culture is the primary education because it carries your values, 
your interests, your principles, your ethics, okay? And, and at the end of the day, whatever your technical skills are, all depends on what your human skills are in terms of what you mm. do with that technical skill. And so when we talk about this happy conference, I like to tell the people about why we chose the word happy. You know, happy is the African word for the Nile River. The Nile is a European word. And so the happy river didn't just begin as a big, powerful torrent. It started as tiny little tributaries coming from waterfalls and rivers and lakes as far south as Malawi, Congo, you know, and working its way up the stream until it gets to Ethiopia and it gets this powerful blue Nile coming out of the Ispit Falls. And then it gets to Uganda and it meets the powerful white Nile. So that by the time it gets to Khartoum in the Sudan, it's this mighty Nile River bringing all the silt and the fertilizer from the southern parts of Africa that created an agricultural environment that allowed for civilization to last nearly 30,000 years because that environment allowed for it to create the economic foundation of agriculture that then bloomed into everything else. And so what we're saying, and let's look at Detroit, how many little economic tributaries we have in Detroit, can we bring them together to form that great torrent of a river that will give the black community of Detroit the tools they need to build economically and take control of the economic politics culture where they live. That's what this discussion is going to be, using all the different segments of history, psychology, uh, economics, mathematics, politics, language. How do we use all of these streams to show our people a model of how to bring the small pieces of our community together? For instance, mm. we have a little group up here in New Rochelle. It's called the Booker T. Washington Brigade. And we need to recapture Booker. I love Booker T. Washington all my life. There was never a moment he wasn't my great hero. People don't understand Booker T. Washington. If you want to understand economics in America, black folks, you got to stop with Booker T. Washington. Okay? Mm. And so we go to the Booker T. Washington Brigade because what we did, we found some retired um, welders and some retired plumbers and some brothers who do house wiring. And we put together a program for our, for our youth to create this mentoring process so we can help them get licensed as plumbers mm. and as welders, okay, and as house wiring. If you get your phone right now, you call Home Depot and ask for somebody to come and fix your faucet, he will not look like you or she will not look like you. You mm. call for somebody to come and lay a tile floor, they will not look like you. Mm. Well, that has to stop in the black community. Yes. We have to create that for ourselves. And so we need Booker T. Washington brigades that have apprenticeship programs all across our community. That We still have people with bricklaying skills, with carpentry skills, with plumbing skills, with wiring skills. Why can't we set up small organizations where we are mentoring our young men and women to learn these skills, help them get licensed and credentials so they can open business of their own? And Black banks be more sympathetic to helping young Black people to open businesses with the kinds of loans we can get in our relationship with the government institutions for, for, for money and so forth and so on. Mm. Well, you know, I, I really like, I like what you're saying there, uh, Professor Small, because it, it almost seems to me that something happened after the 60s where we, uh, you know, Dr. Claude Anderson always talks about uh, how we owned a lot more land 100 years ago than we own today. We had a lot more businesses 100 years ago than we have today. So it seems like we traded on land and businesses for corporate jobs and student loans. And, you know, and, and I, I can tell you, you know, as a, um, uh, you know, I've been teaching at different universities for a while. And, and uh, I'm going to tell you, so, some of these college graduates are kind of useless when you really need something actually done. You know, when you, when you need a real tangible skill, uh, you know, it's like, oh, what is your skill? Well, I have a degree. I have a piece of paper that says I'm skilled. Skilled at what? You know, um, I when I hire people, I don't even ask them if they went to college. I don't care. Right. I need to know what what can are you able to do this task that I need? Can you solve this right. problem? Right. And and unfortunately, in many cases, the college graduates with all the student loans are, are the ones who can't do it, but they're the most entitled in their mind 
because some white guy gave them a certification, but but that that doesn't translate to the real world all the time. No skills, no skills to go with the certification. When I, I when I left Mr. Moss and moved back to New York from Boston, where I lived with Malcolm's sister and my family in 1980, I was looking for a job. And I met a young black man who was a plumber, but he didn't have any license. But he says, I work under this other guy's license. And it was a uh, middle-aged Jewish guy, very nice guy, I forgot his name. He was a physics professor at City College. <laughs> but he wow. made his real money from his plumbing license. <laughs> and it was this white man that told me that there wasn't one black plumber in New York who was licensed. They were all working as subcontractors under white license. And wow. I remember the same thing in Boston because I worked with another brother in plumbing in Boston and we worked under another contractor. So they would give us the small business, like cleaning a toilet, pulling up a toilet and put in, you know, that was good money, mind you. But think of what the money could be if I had the contract to redo the whole building. I could drop a riser, brother, and run the offices on a pot. I can well, no well, sweat better than any plumber in this country. Right now, I could sweat your whole house for you. Put in so what, what was it that was stopping you said that there was no license, black license right. plumbers in New York. What, what was stopping it from happening? Race, racism that would not let us acquire license. Well, the licensing in electronics, the licensing in plumbing, they, these things were controlled by certain ethnic union, controlled unions, mm. and they would block us. My daddy, when he first came up here, was a brick mason. My father had already built 13 homes in the South for people by himself with us pushing the wheelbarrow, you know, and bringing the stuff he needed, came to New York and couldn't get a job building a fence for the city of New York because his skin was black. And he would tell me, he said, boy, I was out there slapping that mud, boom, my stuff was so smooth, dude stopped leaning all over the place, but they got the job and daddy didn't get it. He ended up working in a trash can factory, spray, spray painting trash cans and died from, from the cancer that that spray paint caused at 62. You what, know what, was your father, what was your father's name? Paul. Paul. Okay. Paul, he's greater than that. His name was Paul Johnson. My birth father left my mom when I was about three. The last thing I remember of him is crying and holding on his leg, walking around the bed while he's packing his bag. My father married my mother with 11 children and raised 11 children that wasn't his. Wow. Wow. What a he great didn't man. didn't be no greater daddy than that. No, that's a great man. Extraordinary man. Wow. 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 That's powerful. And a, and a good dancer, too. Daddy, he loved to dance. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and when I look at the dance, that when I first went to Africa, I started seeing African dance. They were like, that's what daddy used to do. You know, because he came from Santee, South Carolina. That's still in the woods. <laughs> that's still Africa. <laughs> the day. So, but, but these are the things we need to bring back. And that's what the Happy Conference is talking about. How do we reestablish? How do we study something, Claude Anderson, and get these ideas right? right? Mm. How do we study some Booker T. Washington, study some Marcus Garvey? Stop talking about them and praising them. They don't want to be praised. That's not how you study somebody, just praising them or in libation. You don't even know what the libation means. Stop that. <laughs> study them. Study the work that they left us learn from it, then implement that study in your daily life and how we do things. Begin to organize what I call, we can call it whatever we want, cell groups, work groups with these young people and with the elders. We've got enough elders who live in our community, retired from teaching, that we can open a university tomorrow in almost any black community in America. But we let them just grow old and die Nobody's trying to work with them to organize nothing, except a few people, not say nobody. That would be wrong because there's some beautiful black academies in this country that send 100% of their kids to college every year and nobody talks about them. But we have mm -hmm. to change what the black colleges do too. Are you preparing the people for what's in the marketplace back home? And I don't think we're doing that in any big way. We're preparing people for the corporate world and we are doing very good in the corporate world. But in being in the corporate world, 
we find ourselves disassociating ourselves from the African-American world. You see, there's an African-American community and also uh, culture. That's not a contradiction. The Chinese don't apologize to nobody for having a Chinese culture. The Koreans don't apologize. The Polish don't apologize. The Italians don't apologize. And certainly the Jews don't apologize. And we always operate like we have to apologize for being the African-Americans. We come from all over Africa. And some of us was even here too when we got here. But we've amalgamated into one people over 500 years. Common experience, common history, common history of resistance. And we are not a people in that we are an ethnic nation within a nation like other ethnic nations within this nation. Let's start operating like that and stop trying to amalgamate with other ethnic groups that don't want our amalgamation. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, I, 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 um, I love that. And by the way, everybody, uh, Professor James Small uh, is the person I'm speaking with. And I put his Facebook information here. So I hope everybody will go to Facebook and look up Professor Small African World uh, on Facebook. <clears throat> That's where you can find out a lot of his information. I wanted to share that with you all. Um, you know, as I listen to uh, you, you speak, you know, uh, the, the, the son of Paul, uh, who was a great man. And I, I admire Paul because my father was a Paul. My father was was a Paul in that he uh, he raised me. And when my actual father did not, or for whatever reason, he was never around right. Um, and, uh, and a real man stepped in his place and, and that man shaped me, you know, in so many ways, just like Paul shaped yeah. you. And, um, and, 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 and also, you know, I feel the pain of Paul. Like when you talk about that frustration, he must've had of being a highly qualified black man, a genius, Let me, boy, boy, listen, this brother, by going into trash cans, built a three-speed reel-to-reel tape recorder on time what? from junk. Wow. Because he from put junk. himself through a correspondent course that was called ABC, ABC School of, of Electronics or something. He took the junk and made himself a three-speed reel-to-reel tape recorder that worked. Wow. But they wouldn't wow. give him a junk putting mm. up a fence in a craft that he was a master at because of the racism and sickness in the American culture, right? Mm. But we can override that by paying attention to what we need to do for ourselves, by focusing yes. how to take the wealth that we do have in our hands and aggregating it as Claude Anderson has told us to do and begin to build businesses on the real estate where we live and begin to own that real estate where we live so that we can employ our children. If you've got a child stepping out of high school into employment, he ain't gonna wanna be no gangster. Hmm. He's not gonna get pulled into the drugs because he has another path where he can see a future with some light and possibilities and opportunities for himself. Yes. Well, That's you know, black nationalism. That's what Malcolm X was talking about. That's what Garvey was talking about. That's what Booker was talking about. Read your ancestors' words, and their instructions will guide you. Mm, wow, that's very powerful. And uh, and let, let let me say this. Uh, speaking of Malcolm, um, I don't know the name of this brother who plays Malcolm on uh, on the Nigel Godfather. That's my little brother, Nigel Fats. I spoke with him yesterday. That brother, yeah. If I if I was giving out Oscars and Academy Awards, I I would give him an, an Oscar in a second. And he wouldn't even right. have to slap nobody to get it. And because right. uh, I tell you, that brother, he's a he's an extraordinary actor. And um, and that's an extraordinary show. And I'm really glad that they have you working on this show, because I think it's an important show. And it present narratives that are different from what you're used to seeing. I mean, you know, when uh, I think my wife and I were very inspired to see Bumpy and Malcolm working together on behalf of right. the community. Uh, and that, and I historical, think historical truth. They were true friends. You remember in, in Malcolm's autobiography where Weston and then, uh, Archie wants to kill him? Well, it's mm -hmm. Bumpy that helps him escape when they were youngsters. And so they would meet again when Bumpy gets out of Alcatraz and Malcolm takes over as the minister for the nation of Islam. They meet again. And that's how the story begins, that wow. they meet, but they remember one another. 
But Bumpy's granddaughter, who wrote the, the, the script from which this program does its takeoff, even though they've changed her script a lot, she said Malcolm used to come to their house every Sunday to play chess with Bumpy. Wow. Bumpy beat um, Fisher twice at chess. Bumpy wow. used to attend Langston Hughes's poetry class. The guy wrote poetry in real life. Trained by Langston Hughes. And so, mm. you know, so, and the other thing we wanted to see him is to see a black man who, yes, society calls a gangster, but he's got a wife, he's got children, he's got a family, and they operate with respect as a family. And I thought that was a great addition because normally they show the brother and he's just shooting people, he's just a gangster and in the street and all. But we said, no, this man here needs a family, you know? Mm. And, he, wow. and his family needs to be involved. And even with Malcolm, we wanted to make sure that Sister Betty had more of a role than she's usually given in these sorts of things, you know, to make a different kind of approach wow. to, to the Black uh, presentation and media. I love that. I, I absolutely love it. And uh, and I know that everybody in the chat, I know y'all love what this brother's saying. Uh, you know, please um, give him a digital thank you. Everybody, please give a digital a round of applause to Professor James Small, and uh, and now that you and I are connected uh, more directly, uh, I, we we got to do this more regularly. Uh, yeah. You know, I I know, um, yeah. So I, I after we're done, I'm I'm gonna get you information and share mine as well, and because uh, I'd love to share my platform with you because I uh, I I hear everything you're saying, and I know people are hearing it, and I encourage everybody to a couple of takeaways I I'm getting from this, everyone, and I want you I want to share this so that maybe you guys can take notes on this. Is one. We got to listen to the ancestors, listen to their words. Don't just worship what they did. Write down the words, learn the lessons. Uh, number two, uh, we got to shift the culture. The culture is uh, as important as, as the training, as important as anything else. The culture is te tells you what to do with your training. It tells you whether you know, I'm going to go over here and work for my people or work for somebody else's people because the culture defines your value system. And so uh, also I want to remind everybody real quick, that this weekend, the uh, the One Africa uh, Unity and Power Conference is going to happen in Detroit. And uh, Professor Jane Small is going to be there, as well as a long list of other uh, extraordinary guests. And I'm going to put the URL. In the Actually, if you go to BoyceWatkins.com, there are tickets where you can go uh, physically and be there directly, or you can also attend virtually. Uh, I'm going to be down in Georgia for part of that time at the I Am A Man March by King Randall, uh, who actually, uh, by the way, Professor Small, he's a young brother, 22 years old, who just built a school down there. Wow. Yeah, so I know Riza is Riza Islam is going to be at both events, and uh, okay. and I'm going to try to do, go to both events because this is what's this is what's happening in our community, people. Like this yes. is where it's at. This is this is your Harvard. This is your Yale. This is your Stanford. You know, let go of the other stuff and embrace what is yours. Like this, this yeah. you, you got black folks out here that are really winning. And they win more when we all support them. So uh, I want to say thank you very much, uh, Professor Small. Uh, it's been a yes, great sir. conversation. Thank you, sir. Yes. I'm honored. And let's do this again. Yes, yes, we will. We will. And uh, thank you all, everybody, for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you. Uh, hit the thumbs up button, share, subscribe on your way out. In fact, everybody, if you could, I'm going to ask you all a little favor. Give me a yes in the chat. If you're going to take this link right now, take it right now. Put it on your Facebook, put it on your Instagram, put it somewhere where other people can see it. Give me a yes in the chat because uh, we are an army. We, we we don't forget all this stuff about one or two leaders doing everything. We are leading by committee. Everybody in here is a black leader and I need you to go lead, which means go do something right now. All, you, all I'm asking you to do is share the link. It ain't going to cost you nothing, no money, no time, no nothing. Give me a yes to say you're going to share this because everybody needs to hear from Professor Small. All right. Thank you all very much. God bless you. And uh, thank you, uh, Professor Small. Maybe uh, right after, uh, brother, I'd love to get your uh, number and I'll share mine as well. And uh, y'all, yes. everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.